Hello everyone and welcome to the next edition of the VTX podcast. Here at the Veterinary Thought Exchange we always start by asking what are you thinking? And this week we're going to be thinking about not only being a vet but growing up in a family of vets uh, and some of the amazing stories and experiences that that brings. For that discussion we're joined by Professor John Hall um, and we're just it's such an honour to be joined by John this week. Not only is he a, an amazing vet but a, also a good friend of mine and he really opens up about not only some of his professional challenges but more importantly some of the personal challenges and grief that he has faced in his life. For our clinical discussion this week, we are coming to the end of our dermatology takeover month, sadly, but excitingly, we're joined by Johnny from Zoetis. And, and this week, we're going to be chatting about some of the amazing developments in the drugs that we can use to treat some of our itchy patients. Just to introduce myself, my name is Scott. I am a recognised specialist in small animal internal medicine, and I'm one of the founders of VTX. As always, thankfully... <laughs> We don't know what we do with her. I'm joined by my friend and podcast co-host and producer, Karen. John, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. We're really excited to have you with us. Um, I we're, we, I don't think we can spend too much time talking about your veterinary background because we'd be here all day. There's so many accolades now. So I wanted to start, actually, I've been listening back to a number of the episodes that we've done and one of the things that comes up or one of the things that we've kind of asked people a lot about is their the difference between what they thought veterinary medicine was as a job and what it actually is like as a job. And I think the unique thing about you is you have this slightly different insight because actually you were living veterinary medicine before you were a veterinary surgeon. So I don't know if you are kind of okay to start by talking a little bit about that no worries so yeah my dad was a, a small animal vet in uh, Manchester so just be, just near Wigan actually in a little town called Atherton and um, after a few years of I think feeling a bit hard done by uh, by some of his employers uh, he set up when he was like 29 and it was kind of one of these we either do this or emigrate to Australia type moments uh, where they took a little bit of a plunge and, uh, and went for it and so my mum was a teacher at the time, but then she packed that in to help with the business. And that was it. That was the investment, I think. So we lived over the shop for a period of time. Uh, I was, me and my brother were born and like lived over the top of the practice. And so we were heavily involved. And there's like, you know, all these little stories going back of me peering over my dad's shoulder, sort of saying, what's that, dad? That's a pyometra, John. You know, things like that. <laughs> they just sort of in the practice and yeah so we grew up in it and my mom and dad actually probably put a lot of effort into dissuading me from going into the veterinary profession um mm. as maybe would ring true with a lot of vets out there might not necessarily encourage the kids to do it uh, but I really mm. I always enjoyed it I mean it's always you know one of those things ah <sighs> sorry that was the cat jumping onto my knee with all claws <laughs> 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 That was uncomfortable. Which one? Which one is that? The boy or the girl? This one is. This one is Flea. Oh yeah. There she is. Flea is something to say. <laughs> so and actually the the um, the uh, the sort of acute eared amongst you out there will probably recognise that meow as very classically Bengal, and that is indeed a Bengal cat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I thought for a minute you'd talk about the noise I made when she gave me a new piercing. All right. <laughs> that was a bit. 
I was surprised so much. It's all right. So yeah, so they they tried to dissuade me, um, but I don't know. It was always academically challenging, hard to get into, so that's part of it. I really enjoyed the places I saw practice at, and I did sort of see practice and do different things as well. I I went and spent some time with uh, my old mate's dad, who is a consultant neurosurgeon at, at one of the hospitals near Manchester. And that was amazing, the kind of work they got up mm-hmm. to and things. But it always appealed to me more, that kind of less hierarchical environment of the veterinary practice where, you know, it's a bit more of a sort of family affair, everybody got on. You talk about this kind of, this family affair type situation, which is which seems attractive. And I think for for the general population, traditionally, veterinary surgery and veterinary medicine felt like that like there was a family affair feeling to it and obviously you're a testament of actually truly being a family affair but you know I I worked with when I did an externship in the states I worked in Oregon and equally I worked with a vet who was one of the first female vets to graduate from Michigan State and she set up a practice in this tiny town in Oregon and literally raised her children in you know she would put them in dog kennels sometimes to keep them like contained yeah yeah and quite. and but that was really i mean she really did that you know that's not a joke wow. but i think that you know so but the world is so different now because although we still work in teams it's quite far from being a family affair it's more of a kind of corporate affair would you yeah definitely and um you know when i finished at uni uh, you know, I went into practice and that was great fun. And again, it was still working in these teams of people who still all got on nights out, you know, and you still, you have your kind of close Christmas too. So all that kind of stuff that appealed that the really big hospital environments didn't. But then ironically, you know, I ended up in big hospital environments, you know, at the universities beyond that. And I do think those places, whilst they provide an incredible place to work, you know, in terms of being academically stimulating, in terms of, all that support in teaching and research and, you know, the holy trinity of all of that kind of teaching, research, clinical work. I do think they sort of start to lose out on that closeness um, that you get in the smaller practices. And, and it's those kind of teams that build that can really often make a practice what it is. Uh, and then, you know, make it the best place in terms of provision of animal care as well. So I think that's, you know, I, I agree that, the kind of corporatization of the profession, you know, as it pushes a little bit more to maybe feeling like what it would feel to work in the NHS, you know, it can be brilliant in terms of what can go in in terms of money and what can go in in terms of kind of clinical sort of specialization and things. The fact that at least you still have small units where people really get on and love working together, that's what often gives people their value in their job, isn't it? You know, feeling part of that small team, loving it, rather than feeling just a cog in a machine. So John and I worked together just now, and I certainly think that, you know, we are part of a very big organisation, but on the ground there are still relationships that I think are really important and make you feel part of something a bit more um, uh, special, I suppose, in some way. The The thing I always think about with the corporate model is... When you're working for, let's say, your dad, who is a person who has set up a practice and you get on with that person and respect that person, I wonder if there's more of a loyalty to that kind of smaller model. It's maybe harder, not that you don't have a loyalty, but it's sometimes harder to feel a loyalty to some of these bigger organisations because it's not that single person that you're building a relationship with. Does that, is that fair? 
I think that is fair, yeah. I suppose it probably depends very much on the people involved then. You know, if you've got, it could also probably the other side to that coin would be uh, that it might be somebody who's a bit of a, you know, a bit of a despot. And then you might feel isolated and in a really difficult position if, if you struggle to build that kind of relationship with a boss or, you know, you don't necessarily have that similar, you know, mentored type relationship. Um, so I think you're right, but I, I think, you know, there's an awful lot of, we all worry, I think, a little bit about potentially the effect of corporatization of the veteran profession. And, you know, it, it's it's been an interesting evolution over the past sort of, 20 to 30 years since all the competitions commission stuff meant that non-veterinary surgeons could start to own veterinary businesses. And um, because, of course, before that, it was always had to be a vet who would own and run a, a veterinary business. So it was, it was all to do with sort of making it more open and, and less sort of controlled. But in doing so now, one might argue if there's only a very small number of businesses that actually own all of the veterinary practices, maybe that's potentially reduced competition to some extent. Yeah, because I think actually, although the organisations are getting bigger, it really is just a few kind of key organisations now that are kind of dominating. I wanted to ask you, I wanted to ask you, so your 29 year old uh, your dad and mum decided to make the decision to, to start this business. I think that it's another interesting thing that we've kind of come across is that kind of, I don't know, you were sort of saying either let's start a business ourselves or let's go to Australia. And I think that people are, I don't want to call it a wobble, but I think people are still having that kind of slightly wobbly moment you know, a few years after graduation where they're like, I need to make some sort of change, maybe not to start a practice nowadays, but maybe to go to Australia or go into uh, something else completely. Um, you know, I saw a, there's quite a, a sort of influential vet on Instagram. She's an Australian emergency vet and she's she's very big on Instagram, like does loads of veterinary stuff. And then she put a post on the other day saying, great news, I'm going off to law school, <laughs> vet medicine's not for me. And I was like, oh. I mean, okay, I mean, good for it, power to you. <laughs> but I wonder, so it, it, it was just interesting, you sort of talked about that kind of, that moment where it was like either Australia or let's do this thing. Uh, do you think that that he felt that, that starting the practice was the right thing to do? Do you think that was, do you think he felt that was the right decision? Um, so I think, you know, and I'm obviously speaking, speaking for them, so I don't want to like misrepresent yeah. what they were thinking and doing, but you kind of get a good idea over the years, don't you, in the tales. Yeah. I think um, they, I think for them it was more of a, I don't think my dad would have considered doing another profession. Like he was the first guy in his family to go to university, you know, from a pretty, pretty um, uh, hard uh, part of town growing up in a, a place mm. just near Manchester, both he and my mum. And so I don't think he'd ever think that being, just being in a profession, I think, was just profoundly mm -hmm. uh, sort of exciting for them and, and you know, secure as mm -hmm. well, you know, from backgrounds where it's much more difficult to be financially secure after the Second World War where their parents working really hard and everything. So I think, um, you know, I don't think it would have ever done anything different, but I do think it was more they were pushed into that decision to set up a practice rather than necessarily being aspirational. It was more they were fed up of abuse uh, by employers um, of all things and and just you know could only see that by being his own boss that was the way out of you know most of what he found challenging in the work even if it, even if he was working 24 7 you know the that kind of thing where there was no out of hours provision you kind of did it did the whole lot 
But I think, but that's, so that was the flip side for me. I was about to say, so you get the quality, you get the quality as far as you're the boss, but then, you know, to then almost put all this other sort of pressure on yourself in that kind of, because you're literally doing everything sort of way. I remember I worked for a, a vet in Edinburgh when I was in vet school um, and he was very, he was still very proud of the fact he was the only vet in Edinburgh still doing his own out of hours. And I was like, but you're crazy. But he was like, I wouldn't do it any other way. And I'm like, but. Oh, it's just an amazing service for your clients. But how do you, how do you have a, a long life doing that unless you sacrifice mm. everything on the altar of veterinary medicine? <laughs> and, um, and, and I think when you set up, it makes sense to do that as well because you're building that bond with your local clients, you're building that reputation. And, and similarly, the fact that it's always you that they get to see, you know, builds that kind of bond as well. Uh, but it's not sustainable. And, and I know that the stress that my parents found, you know, running that place over the years, it was all consuming. Um, and it's something that I suppose I was a little bit reticent because to make money in veterinary medicine as a vet, um, I think, I mean, times change, but I think it was always the case that as an assistant, you would be on, you know, a reasonable salary. Don't get me wrong, like in terms of on a national average sense, you know, you'd be above national average, but not necessarily the, you know, the squillions of pounds that everybody seems to think vets make. I know, I know. But <laughs> I know. but the way to make some money was to actually set up and, you know, run your own shop because ultimately then you keep the profits, don't you? You know, so mm. uh, just like a lot of things, that means you need to invest time and effort and money mm. and take risks. And the risk, of course, is that you could lose everything if everything's invested. And I think they were at a point where they were like, well, we've got to take this risk because otherwise, you know, I can't really necessarily see how we're going to continue in this profession doing what we're doing. And so they did that and they did that in a, a part of the world that, you know, isn't absolutely overflowing with cash. You know, it wasn't a particularly affluent area and through hard work and working all the hours God sent, they, uh, you know, they did all right out of it. But I do think it was one of these kind of turning points for them that was, a matter of necessity rather than necessarily choice. Um, and, you know, doing little things like, you know, using the house they lived in as uh, equity for, you know, raising money for the business um, and then selling that house and then living over the business without saying too much to the bank about it. You know, little things like that where it's, you know, it's really taking some serious risks. I was going to say that. I mean, thinking about that now for for any of us to then be like, I'm just going to take some money out in the house and, you know, and then invest that, like that. That's scary. So just, just, just so I have, cause obviously I've got this picture in my mind of like, I've got this picture. It's like Coronation Street. And <laughs> it's not far was, off, it, was it like Coronation Street? <laughs> that literally, but that's the image I've got of like, of this like Coronation Street house with like a vets downstairs and you lot upstairs. And, but, and it, it, any similarity? Oh, yeah. I mean, so <laughs> my mum tells this story. So they opened in uh, New Year in 1980. And my mum was pregnant with me. So she, I was born in March. Um, so mm. she was pretty heavily pregnant. Was he painting the waiting room? Apparently, like, just in tears. Like, this is horrible. Um, <laughs> and then they opened on the first. You know, that's, that's it. So, yeah, it was a full-on family affair. Quite hard work. Wow. You know, in an old converted house, that kind of classic scenario. Yeah, but, but brilliant. I mean, well, I'm not brilliant for your poor hormonal mother, like weeping into <laughs> this pot of paint. My God, that's 
that's a t- <laughs> but that's I mean that's kind of amazing though for you to kind of be there from literally conception it, it, from all senses of the word to the the fact that then you know you lived above this practice. Do you have any? What are your? Is there any kind of standout memories as a as a child? You know, I, I'm always I, you know, I always say to, I'm always kind of thinking like I, I it's always re, you know how far back do we remember? And I'm always saying how much of this will the kids remember? But how much of that do you kind of remember as a child? Oh, I mean, like, I, I mean, I remember there being obviously always animals about, and and even when we moved out of the practice, when my dad got a house down the road, in a in a town called Lee. Um, we'd, you know, my dad to look after animals at night, you know, we'd have pets at home in the kitchen in a cage with, on a drip, you know, and things like that, because that was the way that you could provide overnight care. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, things like that. And so we'd, I remember stuff like that. And certainly as, as things developed over the years, um, you know, starting to change some of the upstairs rooms at the practice into like a new operating theatre. So, of course all dogs had to be carried up, up these sort of wooden lat stairs, um, either conscious oh. or anaesthetized to, to be oh. operated on and things. And it, you know, wow. the other one is like Christmas holidays, sorry, <laughs> Christmas holidays. I mean, just generally holidays are when you're not in school, you know, mum and dad would be working. That's what they did. They were always working. And so you'd be in this uh, upstairs room over the top of my dad's consulting room. So you could hear through the floor, you know, my dad consulting. And for some reason, we had this old milking stool. It was this really heavy wooden stool. So me and my brother would be watching, like, Stop, Look and Listen and things like this, just trapped in this little room, just bored out of our heads, balancing on this stool. And if you knocked it over, it sounded like the heavens were exploding downstairs. And then one of my dad would come up and give us a right, you know, telling off for dropping the stool on the floor again. To this day, I still don't know why that stool was in there. I don't know why they didn't just take it out. Yeah, just why did, just take the stool away. Just give you a cushion. <laughs> so stuff like that, and then roaming around outside, and uh, they had this sort of backyard which was largely overgrown, sort of nettles and uh, various vicious bits of broken glass and metal and stuff that we'd roam around in there. And there's a tree that we'd climb up and fall out of occasionally, <laughs> just onto broken glass. <laughs> <laughs> The smell, the smell of the uh, the, the shed. Um, I remember because that was where the body freezer was. Oh God! So there was oh, okay. Sort of smell, yeah. Um, and just you know things like that. The smell of the practice, you know, like that kind of disinfectant smell that um, you just get. And the the sort of and they'd be like their dressing trolley, you know, with the bandaging in plastic uh, wrap, and you could go through there as a little boy, just like pop all the wrapping. Just like pop, 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 and then get told off for that as well. It's like he's been doing this. Desterilize <laughs> everything, yeah. <laughs> so when, so obviously, what what vet school did your dad go to? Uh, he was at Liverpool. Okay, so then I think the the other the other because obviously you know big achievement for him to go to vet school from his family, and then so what was the feeling when you trotted off to Cambridge? Like, I mean, was there like fanfares? Like that sounds like uh, amazing. Yeah, it was it was great. I think. I think they was always they were always very proud, and I do wonder in life if you do do a lot of what you do because you want to make other people proud. That's really true. I'm yeah. not sure. I mean, certainly it was easy as you like for me, um, because I'd had a brilliant education. Um, you know, mum and dad were always incredibly supportive, despite trying to dissuade me from veterinary medicine all the time. They would never have dissuaded me from doing what you know I chose to do. 
was a lot harder for them. You know, the my dad, um, his father was a painter and decorator, um, and uh, his mum uh, basically ran with the with his dad a kind of a foster home. So he he and his sister were you kind of like the the son and daughter of his parents. And then there were all these foster kids coming through this home all the time. So it's quite a, a slightly unusual upbringing in that respect. That it's all this kind of, we have this kind of extended family of people who aren't blood relatives, but are actually our extended family. And, you know, people from all kinds of backgrounds. So um, uh, uh, I don't know, they're, they're, I suppose they are in a way aunties and uncles, but some, you know, people, who'd, some kids who've been abandoned and, you know, we still have seen contact with. And then others who were kind of um, children of, of an African royalty, and they were over here, sort of at school and things like that. And so oh, wow. this extended family, so this background, the way they were about also supporting kids, doing all this kind of stuff. Um, and it's a very busy house with lots of comings and goings, and my dad being somebody who got a grant and an assisted place at a school at the time, um, and then managed to get to university on, on a grant. And so much, much more difficult to achieve and, and really just like testament to the strength of character. Um, and then unfortunately for my dad, during his first year at uni, his father died um, unexpectedly. I think it was a, an intersusception or, or an intestinal torsion oh, wow. or something. Um, and I think that was then incredibly difficult. You know, he had to reset his uh, first year. Um, and then just a really challenging time where he was also trying to be helpful and support his mum. So he was up and down the road all the time between Liverpool and Manchester. Um, so that's tough, you know. So I think when I went to uni, you know, my family were very proud. But I was just kind of doing that usual thing where, you know, you've got over the first hurdle of getting onto the course. But then once you're on the course, you just run it, don't you? And you, you just jump those hurdles of the exams and attending everything and, and that. But much more easy sort of path and um, very lucky really to have it much easier than that. I mean, well, I mean, I, you're maybe underplaying yourself a little bit. I think you did, I think you've ended up, do, I think you've done okay. So how much of your, um, how much of your, because obviously Cambridge was only kind of the beginning of, of, of some great achievements for you personally. How much of that did your dad get to see? How much did he, did he witness all of your kind of yeah, so we were, so my dad, uh, you know, was obviously working hard in practice and I think they would go up to sort of three to four vets um, in like a, you know, their their, their veterinary centre where it was. Um, and, you know, we did talk about me potentially going working with him um, after I graduated. It felt like a good idea to work somewhere else, you know, and see how somewhere else did it because, you know, I was lucky in as much as I was able as a, you know, an undergraduate, but, you know, when I was at school to do an awful lot of work at my dad's and get some hands on. And he was very kind, you know, in how much he taught me and things. But like, you know, and I'd be there on my Saturday mornings and, and after school sometimes busy counting tablets at the back of the consult room because he, he ran this incredibly efficient system of sort of seven and a half minute consults. Um, and so whilst he was talking to the clients, you know, you'd be in the background busy writing out the labels by hand. You know, it's all paper records, paper labels and things. So I suppose I knew very, very well how his practice ran. Um, but I thought it might be handy to sort of try somewhere different. So that's when I then went into practice for a few years um, in a lovely uh, tier three hospital uh, on the outskirts of Lincoln. 
And so that was halfway between Cambridge and Manchester, so it was kind of nice as well in terms of distributions between where my friends were and things. Um, and they were they were great. They had some certificate holders in, uh, in in various subjects, but particularly for me, it was the guys who had certs in orthopedics, um, and they were uh, very supportive and, and very kind. And you know what they used to let me do. My dad was always a bit surprised. He was like, "Well, they really letting you do that." And the other thing my dad used to say was like, "God, Johnny, you're not a little bit." edgy doing a surgery like that you know when I was like six months 12 months qualified I was like dad it's all scary I mean it's like it's not that some things are more unnerving than others it's all unnerving <laughs> so you know kind of no sense of danger like a kid in a swimming pool you know what I mean and if he saw some of the stuff you did now I mean he'd <laughs> oh like, man oh, tell me about God. it well, no, but so for those, obviously, you know, John is now a, spe- a specialist surgeon and um, and really, you know, pushes the boundaries of, of pre- I mean, I mean, I mean, stuff that, well, I don't know, some pretty cool stuff. And I feel <laughs> I feel a bit responsible because sometimes I think I ask you to do things that are totally unreasonable. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> it's like when we when we took that esophagus out of that dog and made it a new oh one. My oh, my God. That was a tense afternoon. Yes. I went out to catch a flight. <laughs> yes. But literally, you know, doing doing surgeries that are, are are really cutting edge, you know, and um yeah, and then having to get on a plane at a certain time in the evening, I think I, I just felt that I probably piled too much pressure on that day. So <laughs> I have apologized for that a number of times. Um That was good. <laughs> yeah. So um obviously uh sadly your your dad um has passed away now. Um did he did he did he know did he know that you'd become a specialist and all that kind of stuff that later part of your career? No, so uh, so basically, when I'd I'd spent a few years and I was doing my certificate in surgery in uh, this great hospital just near Lincoln, and they had been really supportive. But I was just struggling to put the tin hat on that certificate because it was the old cert SAS, which was pretty tough. It was almost like a mini diploma, to be honest, um, and quite difficult to get the case log together and things. And at the time, I was I was thinking about again trying something different, getting some different experiences. Um, and so I uh, was then thought about looking around, but I decided that probably any move that I made would be horizontal at best because the facilities I was working in were great. The people I was working with were great. Uh, and I thought, well, any move I can I do here, I'm either going to regret it or I need to just try something else. Uh, so that's when I got, uh, I was lucky to get an internship um, at the RVC and went and did a rotating internship there. Um, and that was a, a great year. It was a lot of fun. It was quite hard. You know, I was uh, pretty much 30 when I did that, which is a little older than a lot of interns. I remember, like, you know, you go in and one of the nurses was like, now this is how you do a blood smear, John. I'm like, okay, thanks. I'll give it a go. You know, so you come from like consulting, doing everything you're doing, doing, your own, doing a certificate in surgery to, you know, somebody condescending to show you how to do a blood smear. But that's what it's all about a little bit. You've got to accept that that's what it is. And it is handy in many ways as well to be shown how to hold your knife and fork again properly and to make sure that you're doing it right. So I did that. And actually, at the end of that year, I was really umming and ahhing about what I necessarily wanted to do. And I even was considering, do I set up practice? Would that be fun or what? And it was, it was at that point that I split up out of quite a long-term relationship. And the year itself had been really tough um, because I'd been traveling to and from between Lincoln and London a bit, or quite a lot. So that was quite a lot of traveling. The hours were pretty heavy going. 
as an intern, you know, and including like quite a lot of 60 hours of nights a week for sort of four to five weeks on the trot. So I don't think I saw much daylight between mid-December and mid-January at one point. And, uh, you know, then I'd also done, I don't know, like uh, a, a study. And um, so collected all the data for that and we were publishing it, got some posters done, presented a bit of CVA, was finished my certificate. So that was the year I actually wrote the case book up and set the exam. So kind of fairly exhausting year, just trying to hammer that CV. Uh, and then split with this relationship, was pretty down about it. So, yeah, so started working nights, uh, which is probably not the most sensible move when you're feeling tired and a bit challenged. The worst thing to do. Um, but it was good because it was back <laughs> in the place that I knew well, but it was the other side of the clock. So the same um, hospital, but the other side of the clock. Uh, and then, yeah, and then very sadly, of course, like me, me dad went and died and completely unexpected. Um, so they were, my mum and dad were on holiday in Lanzarote and uh, they'd been out, had a nice meal. And this is a nice thing, of course. So they had a lovely day, apparently. My dad had had some fish and chips, which he really did enjoy, his favourite dinner. And then just got up and said, I'm going to make a cup of tea and collapse. Oh my God, God. Um, it's just uh, horrendous, yeah. yeah. So just, and, and obviously n- there was no health issues, like it was not, not expected at all from that point of view no no he'd, he'd had like a hip replacement uh, a couple of years before which he'd put off for 30 years so a coward uh, smashed his hip when he was in mixed practice and he'd sort of lumbered on with his hip for years and years and you know it was actually in some ways getting more comfortable as it seized up <laughs> and then he'd taken the plunge uh, got it replaced and was like oh why didn't i do this years ago it's amazing but he did, you know, he, he, he drank a little bit, um, not great to great excess. He smoked the odd cigar and he probably didn't do enough exercise, uh, but he was active. Um, mm. We did an awful lot, you know, we were often out. Uh, he, had, he was, had a real passion for boating. So we we're often out on the boat and doing things. But it's just one of those things, isn't it? And he, mm. he just stood up and had a massive heart attack. And you just get these, this horrendous call at kind of two in the morning, you know, from a stranger saying, Oh, you know, my name's, you know, such and such. You, you don't know me. I'm a friend of your dad. You know, he's, he's fallen over and he's banged his head and died. And he's kind of like, is this it's surreal? Yeah, a really surreal, yeah. horrendous moment. Yeah. But I don't, yeah, I mean, it, there's there's just two things from that for me is the fact that, it, it, <clears throat> you know, it's one of those moments that, well, I'm sure you have thought this many times, it really does make you just realise about how fragile life is and the fact that it's just gone literally in a second. Oh, God, yeah. Um, we've had this conversation loads of times, Karen, that it shouldn't take these big things to remind us, but it should also, it should be a reminder that we need to, you know, be grateful for every second. You know, it's crazy. It it absolutely does that. And always in our family, there was this kind of um, sort of mission, as it were, really. The whole family is work hard, play hard. It was always that. And my dad was absolutely committed. I'm going to work as hard as feasibly possible so I can make money uh, and so I can retire young. That was always the mission. He's like, I want to retire by 50. Um, and I think he was 53 or 54 and he managed to retire. And, and that's what we're always grateful for, that he then had a few years. He was 59 when he died. Um, he then had a few years to really enjoy it. And he did love it, you know, being retired and stuff. Mm, yeah. We did then very much change. You know, we were always supportive of that. That is the family view. That's what you do. You work really super hard to then be able to enjoy it. And that was in all walks of life. 
But then very much after that, and this was always interesting, particularly coming from my mum, it was also then like, actually, maybe don't kill yourself too quickly because there's a lot more to life. Mm. And so nowadays she's been much more along the lines of as supportive of a view. Make sure you get some good quality life around work as well. Don't kill yourself working. Don't get too stressed about things because it's just not worth it. Nobody wants to die before the 60. It, it did completely shift how our family thought about things. Now, John, you still work quite hard. <laughs> have you Have you done I hope you're taking that on board because I still see you working pretty hard. <laughs> I suppose it becomes a habit, doesn't it? And I do enjoy it. I mean, I love what I do. Yeah. I think, uh, I think in life... I really enjoy my work. I really love my work. Do I enjoy my job? That's always a bit more difficult, isn't it? And I think your job changes because, you know, every job has its pros and its cons, every single one of them. Um, But the work, the core of what I do, you know, particularly things like the teaching work and particularly things, you know, like my clinical work. I love a bit of surgery. It's absolutely amazing. It's amazing what we do. It's so cool. And I think it's it's hard sometimes to keep that in focus and remember it um, when everything's very tough. But it is incredible. I mean, it's so cool. The other thing about this awful situation, I, I don't know, is I always said that if I when I go, I want to go like Scylla Black did, you know, on a balcony. And I, I don't know if she was in Lanzarote with a gin in her hand and she just, that was it. That was the end. And so I think there's... <laughs> there's some there's some um you know I, I don't know there's some peace in the fact that they you, you know they were doing something they enjoyed he'd had the fish and chips that day or whatever and so you can kind of you sometimes take a little bit of peace from um you know the fact that people go without a lot of suffering and, and all that kind of stuff but it still doesn't take away how difficult it is to lose anyone at that young age I think that is always going to be hard oh yeah for sure well at, and at any age I mean I think the thing is I think for the people going, for the people who are sort of jumping off the planet, um, it couldn't be any better, right? There's no kind of preamble. There's no threat of what's coming. There's no fear. You just like, have a great day and off you go. I mean, it couldn't be any better if we sort of empathise like that, like we do for our, our own patients, right? You know, well, that's what we do all the time when we rationalise, you know, much better for the dog or the cat to leave the party while they're still having fun to not know it's coming, you know, to live in the moment. And so I think as a family, you know, with a veterinary background, we can definitely see that for my dad, you know, what a way to go, really. I mean, lovely. But for everybody else, the sheer shock of it is something else. I mean, it's untrue. And, and you know, for my mum in particular, just absolutely oh, God, horrendous. Yeah. I mean, they'd known each other since my mum was like 15 or 16. And my dad was sort of 18 oh, and god you know they've grown up together they've shaped each other's personalities and so you know it's it's almost like losing a part of yourself rather than even necessarily lo- losing your life partner because they would just they they shaped one another as they grew and and matured and aged and i just think that was uh, horrendously difficult um, for my mom really really troubling think you know some of the advice she got was excellent and some of the advice and commentary she got from other people was not uh, you know some people like thinking they should have got over it by now you know stuff like that and uh, really unusual how how people have their own opinions um, on this kind of stuff I think that's 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 tough though because at the end of the day and we've said this before the way you feel is the way you feel it's it's already valid 
it's already been validated because it's the way you feel. So mm. if it takes you the rest of your life to get over something or five minutes, both of those things are totally valid because that's how you have processed that. From the other side, it's hard to know what to say to anyone in that situation. But equally, you just have to understand that that person feels the way they feel and it it's the way they feel and that's it, full stop. Absolutely, absolutely right. And and everybody does it differently and there's no right or wrong way. I mean, that's the whole point, isn't it? It's uh, it's something to be endured, I think, uh, not got through. Endured, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and absolutely. And, and for, for me, you know, it, at the time as well, you know, it meant that I just reevaluated everything. And and I was, you know, working, as I say, doing emergency out of hours. Um, and, and I had, I was working for vets mm. now and, and they were so good with me. You know, I, I, my brother and I, we had to fly out to basically repatriate um, his body. And we spent these kind of bizarre sort of three weeks or so in Lanzarote sort of grieving as a family you know my brother my mum me sorry guys oh John sorry guys yeah terribly sad but it was um it was a real release as well you know we had like an incredible opportunity because we were able to just be isolated from everybody else and um, we didn't get bothered by anything we were able to think about our lives and so it was awful but also this strange period where we're in the sun you know we could go out to the beach mm. very odd and uh I'll be forever grateful to my, my bosses at the time. They were so good. So they let me take time out of work. They didn't hassle me about when we went back. Um, they were really supportive for us. Uh, and, and uh, you know, they were just amazing. And then when I got back to work, it was, it was Christmas, as you'd imagine. Um, so this was all sort of been through December. Mm-hmm. And so then I went back to work immediately after Christmas. And it was one of these horrendous kind of shifts where I saw something like 26 things. I euthanized half of them. <laughs> so I, I, I know, and I'm not taking away how supportive work were at that time, but I think, again, there's a <laughs> a better decision would have not been to go back and boxing days. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to go back at some time. So we'd, we'd had this three or four weeks where I'd not been in work yeah. and they had been amazing. And I went, yeah. and yeah, there's like 26 things. I, I euthanized like half of them and, we had a, a consulting mm. room that was almost like acting as a morgue, you know, with owner's <laughs> uh-huh. decisions on cremation sort of on top of the, the poor animals. And it was just, it was tough. And, and I just kind of then made a decision, this big paradigm shift that we'd had thinking about life in the family. And I just handed my notice in. It was like, I'm out. John mm. out. I'm done. Did you? Yeah. And they were, they were very good. Um, and so, uh, but then I started applying for yeah. residencies um, even though I hadn't been sure whether I would or wouldn't, even though I'd been building my CV to that. And, you know, I was super lucky that year. I mean, I'd had sort of five interviews, or whatever, you know, the usual run. I know some people get them straight away, but I'd had that kind of run of interviews. I just, I just did one. There you go. <laughs> You're one of them. <laughs> <laughs> I'd fought the good fight. <laughs> so then I, okay. so then I, uh, I, I got uh, I got offered two residences on the same day, a kind of slightly unheard of not getting any to getting a couple. 
Um, and I, I chose to go back to Cambridge because uh, I loved it there. I always loved it. And it's actually a small vet school, which can mean occasionally it feels a little bit like it's on the periphery. And the, the colleagues I worked with were amazing. And, you know, when I left there, I got my diploma and I spent another couple of years working there as a clinician. I, I really didn't want to leave in many ways. I was kind of headhunted and got a promotion and things. But So then I went from feeling pretty down after a tough year of internship, breakups, working nights, dad dying, to suddenly coming through the other side and, and sort of being off and up and on. And it was amazing, you know. I had an incredible few years as a resident, just brilliant fun, just, you know, getting up to all kinds of, uh, mischief and then um growing up again <laughs> and, and getting a job <laughs> I, I love and i love you know we we've also this has come up a couple of times is that you know cambridge is i think cambridge is a pretty special place as well and and you know just hearing some of this stuff about just the the place you know and obviously the people are really important too but there clearly is something very special about kind of cambridge as well it's like living in a mm-hmm. some kind of fantasy world that that time. Yeah. I remember I had a friend who was there, and his mates were saying, "Why aren't you getting out into the real world?" It's like, why would I want to go into the real world? This is amazing. You know, you kind of living in a film set, and yeah. incredible things going on around you. It's always yeah. fun. There's twenty odd thousand young people just wanting to like have fun, you know, have fun and <laughs> yeah. do yeah, go to make yeah. balls and you know all that yeah. kind. Of, it's just it's awesome. I love no, I love that. And this doesn't have to be veterinary, but we're interested to know um, who inspires you. You do, Scott. You inspire me. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people have inspired me. My dad certainly inspired me. And, you know, he never saw me coming through a challenging time to then, you know, become somebody who's generally respected by the peers for what they do. And and I'd love that. I'd have loved to go to a conference in Manchester and speak and my dad be there. How hard my mum and dad work has, in, has worked has inspired me. And also we still had a, a great family life where they really cared about, you know, working to live and not living to work. It was always about family and stuff. So that's super inspiring. There's a lesson there for us now in this day and time. Do you not think? I'm trying to find that balance. Any, no, that's amazing though. That's, um, uh, yeah, I, I wish I could definitely do a bit better. <laughs> and then I think people in different areas have inspired me. I mean, I think like, <laughs> I think like um, there's certain people in research who've inspired me in, in terms of how hard they've worked and stuff in research. And then there's people like clinically as well. So it's often been my teachers, you know, and, and trying to emulate them um, and be as good as they've been to me and try and help other people in the same way. But honestly, genuinely, you have inspired me recently, Scott, you know. I've really enjoyed listening to your podcast on my drive home to Scotland from oh. work and things. It's been great. Oh, fun. And and John has an, a, a real appreciation, Karen, for the music as well. He, he likes to... Oh, mate, oh, yeah. Nice. Karen, have you seen the video of me dancing to the music in the car? No, I have not. I'll need to send you that. Oh, oh it's something else. <laughs> I love the beat. <laughs> great. He loves the beat. <laughs> Okay, so let's move into our the clinical segment of our podcast today. We're really just so grateful to Zoetis for sponsoring and supporting this podcast, but also the whole of our dermatology takeover month. We're 
As I said, moving into the, the clinical bit, and this chat is definitely intended uh, for members of the veterinary profession. And we just have to let you know that by continuing to listen, you confirm that that describes you. Right, um, so thanks so much for joining us, Johnny. It's really nice to have you on. Um, I just wonder if, if you're okay to start by introducing yourself to the listeners, just about uh, sort of a bit about your your veterinary background and how you've ended up in the lofty heights of where you are now. <laughs> okay, so yeah, so my name's Johnny Lambert. Um, so I work as National Veterinary Manager for Soetis in the UK, and uh, my sort of prime responsibilities are the technical leadership in terms of dermatology and the anti-infectives or antibiotics portfolios. So I work as part of a team of vets. Um, I know you've spoken to Sophie and Louise already. Um, so they're a team of vets, the Zoetis Veterinary Consultants. Basically, our aim is to give information on our products and related disease conditions. I do all things working with the products, training the account managers, etc. I graduated in 1999, started off in mixed practice, and then I slowly uh, moved over to predominantly small animal practice. I went into, I worked in a sort of large referral and first opinion practice in Cheshire and was in practice for about eight and a half years. And I've been working in industry now for just under 14 years. So I've been working in a number of companion animal roles, um, in vet roles, in a couple of management roles as well. I uh, worked in the poultry field for a couple of years as well. So looking after poultry vaccines, which was, which was good and a bit different. And now I'm back to uh, the two things that I really enjoy talking about, which is dermatology and antibiotics. Which is good. I mean, that leads us seamlessly (laughs) into the fact that we're here, obviously, to talk about all things dermatology. And we've been focusing on that, particularly this month, which has been great. I've learned a lot so far. And actually, we're coming to a point now where we're talking about some of the, I think some really interesting stuff um so we've discussed the the kind of approach to patients with dermatological problems we've talked a bit about um you know the importance of parasites and, and obviously controlling those but when I think when we come to making that diagnosis um um of, of atopic or you know allergic dermatitis just a bit more about the the specifics of the drugs that we're thinking about potentially using in uh, at this kind of point can we start by uh, very much from my own interest as well so some of the exciting developments drug wise are the developments around drugs that are based really on monoclonal antibodies now that sounds very fancy <laughs> i'm sure it's very fancy so i wonder if you can start by talking about that those drugs generally because that sounds like a kind of quite an exciting development within the veterinary sort of field yeah, so it's a really exciting um, new form of ther- therapy, both veterinary medicine and also human medicine as well. So monoclonals obviously have been used and are being looked at in human medicine. So we've had Cytopoint, which is a monoclonal antibody for IL-31, cytokine that's responsible for itch and also inflammation in allergic and atopic dermatitis. That's been in the market since 2017. And the other exciting news is actually that we've got um, therapies for osteoarthritis coming as well. We've just literally launched a new product for canine osteoarthritis called Labrella, which has an active called Bed and Vet Map. And there's also um, just been approved as well a new monoclonal antibody for feline osteoarthritis as well, which is another Thrunavet Map. So there's some really cool stuff coming out. 
in yeah. this uh, in this area. So what are the kind of, I mean, I suppose, what are the, the key kind of benefits of this sort of therapy generally? Why are we interested in developing this sort of thing? Well, it's a completely different arm to the therapeutic option. So this is now a sort of biotherapeutic treatment option. And if you compare that to, you know, the traditional pharmaceuticals, they tend to be more chemically approached. If you've got that as a sort of chemistry arm of your um, therapeutic toolbox, this now brings in a biology arm. And it's really interesting to compare and contrast traditional pharmaceuticals with uh, monoclonal antibodies. Basically, the way they work, it's, it's nice to give an overview, really. They're, they're large molecular weight um, biological proteins, and these are developed utilising recombinant DNA technology. Okay, And what they do is they're, they essentially mimic the natural interaction, interaction of these systems, biological systems within the body. And because they're large molecules, they work outside the cell and they can't get into cells. And so they target, they're very targeted therapy. So if you like, it's like if you think about some traditional um, pharmaceuticals where you're wiping out a number of different targets, then you could look on that as almost like a shotgun approach. With this, what you're doing is you're effectively almost using a dart to knock out the thing that you want. Okay, so you can be thinking about cytokines or messenger molecules. You can be thinking about receptors certain types of cells as well. So it's a really nice concentrated approach. And the key thing is with these, to say that it gives you extreme target specificity. So what you're aiming to do is get maximum efficacy, but also cut down on the potential side effects as yeah. well of the therapy that you're using. You know, with traditional thinking about side effects, thinking about traditional approaches to atopic dermatitis or allergic dermatitis, where particularly when I was in, you know, first in primary care practice, and I worked in the charity sector actually, actually as well. And really, we were limited to using steroids. And and I'm, I, I, you know, as a medicine specialist now, I'm definitely not against the use of steroids because I use them every single day. But I think you know, in this kind of context, particularly when you're maybe using medications. Uh, longer term having options where you can reduce some of those uh, traditional side effects particularly associated with steroids must be of benefit to to our patients yeah definitely and ob obviously steroids and other medications still very much have their place you know with a number of different conditions mm. one of the other nice pieces with this as well is that so the way that monoclonals are broken down is very different to traditional pharmaceuticals. So they're broken down by protein catabolism. So they're taken down as standard proteins would be by cells and broken up and recycled into amino acids. So there's no actual effect or reliance on the liver or kidneys. So this means that in comparison to traditional drugs, mm -hmm. there's very little impact at all on those, um, on those organs. So obviously this we're talking so the monoclonal antibody type drugs they are not the only drugs that are available for the management of atopic and allergic dermatitis so i think the interesting thing that people are going to want to understand when they are at the point of choosing drug therapy to manage their atopic cases and obviously there are complexities to these cases and it, you're on a journey getting to that point of making that decision how are we thinking about these different options and, and why are we potentially choosing one therapy over an alternative option? Sure. And it's a great question. And it's, it's, all, it's all down to individual case management and working out what you need for that individual case. So you'd, you'd have heard from, um, from Tori and Sophie you know, earlier in the uh, podcast series about obviously working out what you've got going on. You know, have you got infection going on? Are the parasites present? 
Are there other things like food allergy, for example? And then it can lead you, once we know how these drugs actually work, so how, for example, the monoclonals work and what they target, you can then fit that into your sort of targeted therapy, if you like. You can choose that. So what you're aiming to do with these drugs is to knock out, in this case, you're aiming to knock out the itch input effectively. So you're affecting IL-31. You also have some anti-inflammatory effects of IL-31 as well, but the predominant effect is on cutting out itch in a variety of cases. So then I suppose my question is, why do we not always only use one option? What are the benefits of alternative options for certain cases? Again, it's, it's, it's treating the individual case, but realising that you know, different drugs work on different parts of the pathway as well and different parts of the allergic or atopic dog as well. Mm-hmm. So, and that's why it's so important, as it is with other you know, sort of chronic diseases, things like osteoarthritis, for, we'll often think about multimodal therapy. So it's really important for, if we're thinking about, for example, atopic dogs, it's also really important to keep the skin hydrated to have direct effects on, you know, improved skin barrier function as well. And different drugs will work in, you know, as you know, in very different ways as well. So it's sometimes the case where, you know, for example, Cytopoint, it can be used alongside Apoquel as well. So you'll be using the targeted therapy, but you'll also maybe be using Apoquel as well for the effect on some of the other cytokines that also affect inflammation. So it's really on an individual case basis. So drugs like Apoquil then, so how does, how, how, does that, how does that work differently than Cytopoint? What's, what's its mechanism of action? Okay, yeah, so, so Apoquil is another really exciting development. Um, that was launched in 2013, and that works again. It's a field or group of drugs that are used on the human market as well called Janus kinase or JAK inhibitors. So the way that Apoquil works is... Janus kinase enzymes are located on cell receptors for certain cytokines. So if you imagine these receptors effectively, they're transmembranous. They fit across the surface of of a cell, okay, across the cell membrane. There's different cytokines or chemical protein messengers out there, okay? And the ones that we target through Apoquel are IL-2, IL-4, IL-6, and IL-13, which are all predominantly pro-inflammatory. IL-31 as well, which tends to be predominantly pro-itch, but as I say, has some anti-inflammatory, has some inflammatory effects as well. When these bind to the receptor, there's an enzyme, an intracellular enzyme attached to the receptor that triggers or activates, and that then causes downstream cell signaling. And you get the, you get then get the effects of the cytokine in the cell. So for example, in IL-31, it would be, say, in nerve cells, you'll get the, the nerve cell firing, basically. Um, and what Apoquel does is it inhibits that Janus kinase um, enzyme. So it effectively turns it off. So if the um, cytokines bind, they don't have any effect, effectively. Whereas in complete contrast, what you're doing with the monoclonal antibody with Cytopoint is you're targeting the, cyt- the cytokine externally, so IL-31, outside the cell. You're binding to it, stopping it, effectively binding to the, uh, to the receptor. So the other sort of really important point that we've got is that we see you do see certain cases. Sometimes people will think of Cytopoint as being injectable Apoquel, and it's not. It, it works in a different way. It's a different targeted therapy. So you sometimes see cases that don't seem to respond to Apoquel, but actually respond very, very well to Cytopoint. So it's always worth, worth trying both options or sometimes both together. 
So yeah, so I think that was my next question. So there's definitely the option. There are some patients that will respond well or better to one drug versus the other. And so it's definitely worth trying both. And if you got to a stage where you you needed to because of uncontrolled disease, then there is the option to try both of them together. Yeah, there is that option to, to do that. And it might be that you're controlling the sort of initial inflammatory phase and then wean off the Apoquel and Cytopoint tends to be your long-term, uh, your long-term option. Uh, that's a really interesting point you make. And it, it's potentially the way that we should be thinking about lots of different things, not just pain or whatever else, but that kind of multimodal um, approach. And so having an understanding that we can use these different options uh, together it is really kind of um, beneficial and I suppose can only be really be beneficial to the patient as well. And one of the other points that I wanted to kind of pick up on is that that we're, we're, we're seeing a kind of combination of specifically anti-itch, but also anti-inflammatory. And obviously those two things are related very much, but also very different as well. And so having an effect on both of those sorts of parts, I think is really um is really kind of valuable um yeah so just coming back to cytopoint again what other sort of um uh, benefits or, or or newer understandings of that drug do you have regarding um uh, atopic and allergic dermatitis yeah so the really nice thing that we've got now is um traditionally so since the drug was launched in 2017 we had the it was it was licensed for clinical manifestations of atopic dermatitis in dogs now we've actually recently had an update to the claim where it's now um, also it's approved for treatment of pruritus associated with allergic dermatitis as well. So very similar to the Apoquel claim. And that's this is a really good thing because what this now means is you've got a, a broader spectrum of use for the product, effectively, where it can work very, very well for some of these allergic dermatitis cases as well. And actually just to, and again, just for the, the purposes of, of, um, our, our listeners really then so we're, we 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 talk about atopic and then allergic dermatitis just let's be really clear then about the distinction between those two things yeah so both are it's important to say that both are they're allergic diseases so atopic dermatitis is a disease where you get a allergic response if you like to environmental allergens um, obviously we're thinking about and that can be mediated by a number of different mechanisms um, whereas if we're thinking about allergic dermatitis, that also encompasses a number of other types of causal factors, if you like. So food allergy, contact allergy, parasitic related, so flea allergic dermatitis as well. So all these different things can fit in. And there are obviously other causes of allergy as well. OK, so when we've instituted either of these treatments that we're talking about, um, I think one of the key things people are going to be interested in is, well, what happens when they may, let's say they initially have a very positive effect on the patient, but then that effect tails off for whatever reason. What, first of all, is that a thing? Does that happen? And second of all, what do we do when we find that we're losing potentially the beneficial effect that we might have had initially? Yeah, it's a really, really interesting question. And it's something that we do see with, um, you know, with chronic disease, you know, as a whole. Um, and it's really important to go back to the, it's going back to the, the clinical examination, okay, and going back to working out what's going on with the individual case. So if you've got any allergic dog or any atopic dog that's under control with the products, it's very, very possible for flare factors to, to kick in. And uh, Tori and Sophie would have talked about these. Um, 
any other podcast. So it's really important to go back to ruling out the other cause of itch. Say you've got a dog that's on apicalocytopoint and they start itching again. You then need to think, right, why is this? You know, the last thing you're going to probably think about is the drug is not working anymore. You need to rule out some really important things first. So parasites. So make sure that there's no, you know, is flea medication up to, is up is, is that up to up to scratch so to speak so <laughs> that was terrible <laughs> that's a really bad joke it? i didn't mean to be it's um, a really really bad joke yeah Do, have you used that one before <laughs> never no <laughs> never. <laughs> all these years and that's never come out before anyway sorry to interrupt <laughs> and there we go there it is on the podcast <laughs> so it's, it's just making sure that you know make sure there's no parasites present you know are there any other animals in the house that aren't treated scrapes you know looking for mites as well infection tends to be a big cause and uh, infectious flare-up as well so you can get bacterial infections flaring up you can get yeast infections malassezia and the products will not control that disease okay so you if you get flare-ups you need to treat those accordingly so bacterial with either topical meds or in obviously systemic meds if they're indicated and the same with malassezia overgrowth and then the other things that can happen as well are food allergies. So has the dog, you know, suddenly, has it been exposed to something it's allergic to that's been diagnosed as it's been allergic to in the past? So if it's got, say, a beef allergy, has it got hold of something off the floor, um, you know, in the kitchen or has it been fed something, had something different? Or, you know, is it a particular type of time of year when seasonal allergies really flare? So, for example, pollens and the dog suddenly gone out for a walk and had a massive exposure to pollen. Okay, and therefore you're getting something that's overriding the drug. So you look at all of those things and try to rule them out and treat them accordingly. The other piece is, you know, again, as we said, it's very much it's a multimodal approach. So, again, if you are looking at a dog going out more at summer and there's pollen, you know, think about bringing in things like bathing, for example, because that can reduce contact with surface, obviously remove surface allergens as well. Mm-hmm. And if we did actually on that point, you know, and this is something I remember being a bit anxious about when I worked in emergency practice, actually, where, you know, dogs would come in on various different therapies for itchy conditions, you know, whether that be you know, immunotherapy or, you know, whatever, that they'd seen a dermatologist and they were on X, Y, and Z. And then as an emergency practitioner, when they've had like this massive flare up on a Sunday and you're like, oh, but if I, can I give steroids on top of this stuff as a kind of short, sharp circuit breaker if if it's indicated? But I think there's always that anxiety because they've been seen by a dermatologist and therefore you don't want to kind of mess anything up. So I think my question is, if it was necessary, would a ster- steroid therapy on top of some of the medication we've been talking about be ter- a terrible thing for a short period of time let's say sure yeah i think when it comes to apoquel what i would do if you're going to use a steroid i would probably stop the apoquel okay because we know that apoquel is an immunomodulator not an immunosuppressant but then if you add steroid on top you will get immunosuppression with the steroid potentially Okay, Um, but the night really nice thing is with Apoquel, you can it's like a light switch. You can turn it on and turn it off straight away and the drugs out of the system very, very quickly. With Cytopoint, there's certainly there's no contraindications with using with any other drugs at all. That's one of the really nice things and the flexibility of the product as well. So you could certainly use a steroid on top if needed. 
just on that, obviously we know, um, listeners will know that when we're on steroids, for whatever reason, we have to come off those steroids relatively gradually, just um, because the body obviously compensates for having the steroids on board. Is that the case for either Cytopoint or Apoquil? Do we need to wean those drugs or can we just stop those if it was if it was indicated? Yeah, that's another really nice point with a product. You can just stop them, both of them. Um, you know, there's no need to wean off at all. So as I say, Apoquil particularly, you can just switch off straight away. And um, with that short half-life, so there's no waning. Okay. So I think it's really exciting, actually. And I think one of the things that's really interesting is when we, yeah, just regardless of, of the kind of topic of, of dermatitis, uh, um, dermatology and, and um, uh, itchy dogs and cats, I think um, it's just really exciting to see drugs that are coming through that are, that, that are, in many ways, very innovative as, as far as, you know, different mechanisms of action and, and I think what what is nice about that overall is not oh, first of all it's very clever and it, it feels you know that you know the the profession is always changing and, and it's just so nice to see that it's just nice to have so many different options. Again, I, I was talking to a vet who had graduated a little bit of time ago. It was Laura, and she was saying one of the things actually for her is that when she first graduated, things were simpler in some ways because actually there was there wasn't so much available, not just drug wise, but diagnostically. And so it's it's a double edged sword because it's so nice for us to have so many different things, options nowadays for treatment and for diagnostics, but it gives our new graduates so much more to get their heads around. So I think having conversations in this way and just refreshing people's drinks, so to speak, as far as these different options, I think is really, really valuable because certainly it's um, it's an ever changing sort of um, area, really. From I suppose from your own experience and from with a derm with your dermatology hat on, do you have any top uh, tips? Maybe I'm putting you on the spot. Louise was put on the spot a bit, but um, any sort of top tips or real kind of take homes as far as uh, the management of atopic or allergic uh, dermatitis dogs? I think it's it's very much it's it's treat each patient individually and always come back to that workup. And that step-by-step approach. So those three sort of crucial areas, you know, that can cause itch and rule them out one by one. So parasites, number one, bacterial, um, infectious disease, yeasts, and then, you know, think about the allergic disease from there. I think, you know, the other sort of piece that you've got is with the two treatments we have now is you've got a really nice um, sort of treatment choice to make. Okay. So you can, and you can base that on the individual case. So, you know, good thing for Cytopoint now is that you can use, that's a product you can use in animals under 12 months of age, okay, potentially which Apoquel is not licensed for. If you've got comorbidities, it's a really nice, safe treatment to use from that perspective as well. If you've had things like Cushing's or Demodex or Neoplasia, for example, or if you've got, um, obviously, if you, if you have, you know, animals where compliance is a big issue as well. What this gives you now is it's a chance to get these animals back into your clinic on a monthly basis and to build up that, you know, that pet owner and vet bond. One thing we would always say is, you know, it's really important not to x-ray clients' wallets as well, okay, and to make sure that we always give them the option of different treatments as well. So, you know, is compliance going to be an issue for them? In a lot of cases, it will be. We know that from a lot of data. So give them the option, you know, would they like a long-acting injection that will cover it or would they prefer a daily tablet? And that's really important to uh, not make assumptions about our clients. I think that's a really, and actually I, I find myself saying this to um, 
some of the residents that I work with recently where, you know, I, I've, I, I listen to them make assumptions about treatment options before we've even seen clients based on lots of different things, you know. Um, and I And I always say to them, it is not our job to make decisions for clients based on any sort of preconception and, and based on money at all, actually. It's our job to present clients with all of the options um, and be able to work with different options, but certainly not to make decisions for them based on that. That's not our job, really, at, at all. It's our job to present them with the from the the gold standard right down to other options that 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 may also work um on lots of different levels so i think that's a i really like that phrase actually not not x-raying clients wallets that's a really i, I really i'm going to use that can i use that i'm going to use that i like that. You so just you can take your dermatology hat off then just t- to finish with and as a as a as a vet as a vet and a, a an experienced vet who's done lots of really cool things and been you know chickens and all that stuff um is there any one piece of advice that you would give to younger vets listening at probably the beginning of their career just as far as kind of navigating or or, or things that you wish you'd maybe known um at the beginning i think key thing for me is just don't rule anything out in terms of your career there's loads of you know really interesting avenues that you can go down um I found it really interesting going in to look at different species. Um, you know, I worked in mixed practice um, to start with. I thought that helped me as well in terms of the di- direction I wanted to go in. I came out of vet school wanting to be a large animal vet and then discovered actually, you know, my prime interest was going to be in small animals. Um, and it's the same with, you know, going into industry as well. You know, I'd never said I'd be going into industry when I left vet school either. But actually, you go into that and there's lots of different options that you can explore, you know, different ways. You know, your vet degree can take you an awful long way in a lot of different directions. So make the most of it. You know, you, you only, you know, you've only got you've only got one life. Um, you know, you've only got one career as well. So just go out there, look at the options. And there's there's lots of different things that you can do in our profession, I think. No, it's really true. That, and actually, it's funny that comes through, Karen, I would agree that's a comes through a lot in what people say and I think that's really nice I was you know I was I was having the same conversation actually with an, an, a friend of mine we were walking with a kid yesterday who is also in industry and, and he I never I, I shared a flat with him at vet school and I'm if he's listening he would know that I we never would have imagined he would have been doing what he's doing now you know and and it's but enjoys it immensely you know and I think that's really important that we have it, we shouldn't pigeonhole ourselves and it it, it, a vet degree can do so many different things for 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 us in so many different ways so no that's 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 really great because we've been discussing product today um in order to comply with our industry code of practice i need to just advise everyone that cytopoint contains locavet map and apoquel contains oclocitinib and these are ponv medicines further information is available on the product SBCs or by contacting Zoetis by phone or by email at customersupportuk at zoetis.com. I want to say a truly massive thank you to John and Johnny for um, chatting to us today. It's just been an amazing chat with both of you. So thank you so much. Big thank you again to Zoetis for their sponsorship of this podcast. We are truly, truly appreciative. 
I want to thank all of you for listening and for your continued support. It really has truly uh, been amazing. If you want to learn more about VTX and what we do, then please head over to our website, which is www.vtx-cpd.com. Oh, almost got that wrong. Um, and again, big thank you to you all and we'll see you next week. Bye.